turn to a new book in the Deuteronomic History. I always uh, get my tongue tied when I say that. Um, But we come to Judges, uh, and we'll look at chapter 1 all the way to chapter 2, verse 5. So we'll read the entire chapter of chapter 1 and all the way to chapter 2, verse 5. The Incomplete Conquest. So we'll begin reading at verse 1. Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. So Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me to my allotted territory, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they killed ten thousand men of Bezek. And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek, and fought against him. And they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Then Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him, and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. Then they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. Now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. They struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains in the south and in the lowland. Then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kirjath Arba. And they killed Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Deber. The name of Deber was formerly Kirjath Sefer. Then Caleb said, whoever attacks Kirjath Sefer and takes it, to him I will give my daughter Aksa as wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So he gave him his daughter Aksa as wife. Now it happened, when she came to him, that she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you wish? So she said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have given me land in the south. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad. And they went and dwelt among the people. And Judah went with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Also Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. So the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland, because they had chariots of iron. And they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had said. Then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak. But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. And the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. So the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel. The name of the city was formerly Luz. And when the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city, and we will show you mercy. So he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites, built a city, and called its name Luz, which is its name to this day. However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or to Anak and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibliam and its villages, 
for the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites were determined to dwell in the land. But it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute, but did not completely drive them out. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Getzer. So the Canaanites dwelt in Getzer among them. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol. So the Canaanites dwelt among them and were put under tribute. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or Alab, Aksib, uh, of, of Alab, Aksib, Helba, Aphik, or Rahab. So the Asherites dwell among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, for they dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath were put under tribute to them. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down to the valley. And the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Heres, in Ijalon, and in Shaalbin. Yet with the strength of the house of Joseph became, uh, when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. Now the boundary of the Amorites was from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah, and upward. upward. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. You shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. You have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be thorns in your side and their God shall be a snare to you. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Amen. Well, when I was a new convert, like every typical male, I loved the book of Judges. And really without understanding the gravity of the situation, I think I loved the larger-than-life characters. I liked the bloodshed. Uh, I liked the killings that went on, especially Shamgar and his ox goat that he killed a bunch of guys with. I thought that was kind of cool. So I loved the book of Judges. But for others, because of the bloody nature of the book, they would just like to skip it altogether. I think in a lot of ways, both views were wrong. You see, it's not so much about the larger-than-life characters, although they are larger-than-life. It's more about what God does for an undeserving people. Judges is an important book in the history of Israel because it shows the de- de- degeneration and depravity of sin in and among the people of God. But it also speaks to us about the salvation of our Lord. After all, didn't Jesus come to save his people from their sins? And this is a bit of an unstable time for the people of Israel. Joshua has passed. It's after his death. And as we'll see, there is no king uh, in Israel. Everyone does what is right in his own eyes. And certainly canonically, it comes after the book of Joshua. Remember, the book of Joshua was the positive entering into the land based upon the foundation of the book of Deuteronomy. Even though we did Deuteronomy two years ago, it still remains the foundation for the people of Israel. Remember, it's a covenant of works for life in the land. If Israel does what is right, they'll receive blessing. If they disobey the Lord God Almighty, then they shall receive the cursing. Joshua is positive. We see the promises of Abraham fulfilled as the people have entered into the land. But will the people then retain the land? Well, as we see in Judges and the entire book, but especially 2 verse 10, when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them 
who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. And later on in 2115, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we see that already happening in the introduction. Chapter 1, in a lot of ways, is an introduction to the book of Judges. I've never been a big fan of doing a separate study on introduction to books because books just introduce themselves so well. And what we see here, uh, the problem that we see here, is this incomplete conquest. Remember, Israel was supposed to dispossess the land. They were supposed to engage in harem warfare and not only devote the Canaanites to destruction, namely because the Canaanites were wicked and God was using Israel to judge them, uh, but also that if Israel doesn't drive out the Canaanites or remove them from the land, then they're going to be allured. They're going to be caught in the snare of the gods of the land and turn away from God Most High. We already saw some cracks in Joshua. They did not utterly drive out the Canaanites. They did not utterly drive out the Canaanites. When the land was being possessed, when they were dividing the land, they did not complete their task. And so the people are supposed to go and lay hold of that promise. God has provided it for them. God will be with them. They must go and take the land that God has promised. But will they trust in him and will they obey what he has said? In reality, Judges is the canonization. That's what Daniel Block says. It's the canonization of Israel. They were supposed to be a holy people, but as we see as the book unfolds, they become more and more like Canaan. And so in Judges 1 to 2, 5, despite the initial success of Judah, Israel's disobedience is manifested in their failure to complete the conquest. It is incomplete, and Yahweh is going to accuse them and threaten them based upon their lack of faith and trust in him. So we'll look at this incompleteness under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see the continuing conquest, chapter 1. Then we'll see the covenant breakers in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So the continuing conquest, chapter 1, and then the covenant breakers. So let's first look at the continuing conquest in chapter 1, uh, the entire chapter. And notice in chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 26, we see the success primarily of the south. There is a positive start to the book. And we see that they inquire of the Lord in verses 1 and 2. But there is the death of Joshua that connects us with the past and raises questions for the future. Now, after the death of Joshua, one thing that's interesting is when there's major changes uh, in the Old Testament, uh, especially uh, from uh, uh, especially from Joseph and then the coming of Moses and then when Moses dies and jo- Joshua now when Joshua dies it's usually a major change amongst the people of God. God still remains. God is faithful to His kingdom, but the servants of the Lord pass. What will happen? What will occur? Will the people of Israel do what is right? Will they retain? The land. So it connects with what came before, connects with what happened in the book of Joshua, and especially immediately in Joshua's 22, 23, 24, which speaks about retaining the land. And it centers around worship, it centers around obedience, and it centers around faithfulness to Yahweh. Will Israel worship Yahweh alone? Will they worship Yahweh aright? Will they worship him according to his ways? And will they obey based upon the terms of that covenant and we all know that they do not do that thing 
But initially, things start off well. Rather than just going their own way, the people of Israel ask the Lord what they shall do next. And so after the death of Joshua, the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who will be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? It's not so much they're taking the land, they have possessed the land, but they're just finishing the job or are supposed to finish the job. God has promised they must lay hold of that very thing. So they asked the Lord, Lord, where shall we go? Lord, what shall we do? And the Lord responds. He says, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. The Lord gives his word. The Lord gives his assurance that he shall be with Judah. Now, remember, Judah is where the line of the Messiah is going to come from. We see this in Genesis 38 and Genesis 49. And we see throughout the divided kingdom later on in Israel's history, Judah is the primary tribe. You know, that's what, uh, it's the, the primary tribe in the south, and the south is known as Judah. So Judah is important. Remember, too, when we go, go back to the sons of Jacob, Judah receives the line, Joseph receives the blessing. And so Judah and Joseph, in a lot of ways, are both leaders, but they receive different things. And so Judah... It makes sense that Judah will be the one based upon redemptive history. So God gives that assurance. He says, I have delivered them into your hand. Uh, You shall take them. Now, the point of all the cities and the lands that are taken with what uh, is to follow is not so much about chronology, but geography. And not so much about a specific geography, but primarily pointing out who was taken And what happened to those who dwelt in the land? We see as Israel presses on and presses forward, we begin to see the cracks happen and cracks occur among the people of God, even in what is primarily a successful uh, uh, movement of Judah to go and take their allotted land. And so we see the conquest of Judah in verses 3 through 21. God has given them assurance, but then we see that conquest proper. And the first kind of section of that conquest deals with the taking of Bezek. And notice we see the unity they have. So Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me to my allotted territory, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. Simeon is going to be absorbed or Simeon is surrounded by Judah. That is what he receives. And so Judah says, let us go together. The people of Israel as a whole, they inquire of the Lord together. There seems to be a unity amongst the people of God. That's also an important theme in the book of Judges, because what happens at the end? There's a civil war. There is no more unity amongst the people of God. That's why unity amongst the church is a blessed gift. Certainly we have our differences. Certainly we have our sins. Certainly we have our issues. It is a blessing to be united as the people of God in truth, And if we have issues with one another, to know how to deal with one another in a proper way. Seeking forgiveness, seeking to clear the air, seeking to deal with that very issue. Unity is something that is to be preserved, not at the expense of truth, but something that should be sought nonetheless. And we see that with them at the beginning here. And so they go up, verse 4, Judah goes up and Simeon, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. So the Lord helps them. They're taking out some baddies. They're taking out some Canaanites. And they come and they uh, take this one king. Verse 5. And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek and fought against him. And they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. 
Then notice the, what they do to him and what he says. Then Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. You really can't do much without thumbs or toes, can you? Your hands are just stumps. There's nothing you can do. And notice what is said, or what Adonai Bezek recognizes, verse 7. He says, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. Bezek becomes a philosopher. Bezek recognizes that there is retribution and justice in the world. You see, what's interesting is that the, it points out that from the lips of a Canaanite, he recognizes that they were not innocent. Sometimes with our modern delicate sensitivities, we freak out about all the violence that goes on in the book of Judges. But notice that Adonai Bezek recognizes that he's not innocent. He is the one who cut off toes and cut off fingers and cut off hands, and God has repaid him. Davis says, anyway, contemporary Western church members who vicariously and avidly gorge themselves on violence via television and cinema have forfeited any right to throw the first stone at the biblical conquest. Especially when Adonai Bezek recognizes what God is doing. It doesn't mean he's saved, but he recognizes what God is doing. God will repay. God will bring judgment. And that's exactly what God does. And the people of Israel should have been paying attention. Because notice, then they brought him to Jerusalem and there he died. What were they supposed to do with him? Kill him. That was what they were supposed to do. Yet they let him live and they let him die on his own. So cracks are beginning to show, even in the taking of Bezek. And then we transition verses 8 through 15 to the taking uh, of Aksa. I know some feminists won't like the way I said that, but that's okay. Verses 8 uh, through 11, we see the summary. Now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. They struck it with the edge of the sword and they set that city on fire. And afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains, in the south, and in the lowland. And we sort of see how that plays out uh, with the rest of the verses concerning Judah. So Judah goes up against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now remember, the Lord appeared to Abraham, Abraham at Hebron, or uh, in Genesis 13, and he gives them the land. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kirjath Arba, and they killed Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai. And then verse 11, from there they went against the inhabitants of Deber. The name of Deber was formerly Kirjath Sefer. And then we come to Caleb's taking of the land. Remember, Caleb was one of the two who was good. He was part of that first generation. When they were on the borders uh, of the Canaan, they're ready to take it. Ten were fearful of the Anakim, the giants in the land. But Caleb and Joshua were not. And so Caleb receives his portion Caleb receives his blessing. Caleb receives his allotment in Judah. We saw this in Joshua chapter 15, verses 15 through 17. Uh, now we see him actually take it. Uh, in Joshua 15, it was foreshadowing what he would do, but pointing out the allotment that God uh, had given unto him. And Davis kind of doesn't really know why this is here. And most of the commentators don't really know why this is here. And I admit, I don't really know why this is here, but... Perhaps it has to do with the blessing of the land. And certainly it introduces Othniel. It introduces one of the judges. And there are some positive things with Othniel. He's got zeal for the Lord. 
He marries within his clan. Marriage is also a big deal amongst the history of Israel when they marry foreign women, which they should not. Othniel uh, marries within his clan, so that's all important. But the land especially, the land especially, as she desires blessings in the land. And so we see verse 12, Caleb says, whoever attacks Kirjath Sefer and takes it, to him I will give my daughter Aksa as wife. And so Caleb has got old, and the way in which he further takes other lands is by young whippersnappers who are ready to go and take out uh, Canaanites. And so Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it, so probably Caleb, Caleb's nephew, and he gave him his daughter, Aksa, as wife. Now it happened when she came to him that she urged him to ask her father for a field, and she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you wish? So she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me land in the south, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. She wants blessing. She has this desire for the land. She has this, this desire to be in the land. But as we see with Israel's conduct, they don't share that same sentiment. So there's romance. There is recognition of, one's, uh, of God's judgment. And then there is the conquest with cracks in verses 16 through 21. We see how the Kenites, they go up with Judah. They dwell amongst them. Now again, a good thing in verse 17, Judah went with his brother Simeon and they attacked the Canaanites. They utterly destroyed it then. So the name of the city was called Hormah. They take some cities that are would be later part of the land of the Philistines. Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. Then there is this assurance, despite some of the cracks, the Lord was with Judah. The Lord was near to them. The Lord was with them. The Lord provided for them. But they, uh, then they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. Remember in Joshua 11, the enemies had chariots of iron and Yahweh routed them and the people fought and won. Well, the people should have remembered that very thing. So there's positive, but it's intermixed with cracks. There's positive with Caleb. Caleb lays hold of the promises of God. Verse 20. They gave Hebron to Caleb as Moses had said. And he expelled the three sons of Anak. He removed the Canaanites from his portion. He removed them from the land. He expelled them to make sure that there would be no remnant of Canaanite worship. He had zeal for the Lord in this way. But Benjamin doesn't. Verse 21. But the children of Benjamin, and Benjamin, oh Benjamin, when we get to the end of Judges, and all the terrible things that happen with Benjamin. The ben children of Benjamin did not drive up the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. Probably a fortress. Doesn't mean that Judah doesn't take them, but probably doesn't fully take them. Benjamin doesn't perhaps take their portion of it. Later on, David would be the one who removes the Jebusites. So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So successful overall, but cracks are showing. And then we see some success with a northern tribe, the house of Joseph, verse 22, probably Ephraim, also went up against Bethel and the Lord was with them. The Lord helped them. And so they did so by reconnaissance. Verse 23, the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel. The name of the city was formerly Luz. When the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city, and we will show you mercy. 
So he showed them the entrance, probably a secret passageway to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and his family go. They take Bethel, but they do not utterly devote every man to destruction. And look, the spirit of Luz lives on. Verse 26, And the man went to the land of the Hittites, built a city, and called its name Luz, which is its name to this day. He just took his Canaanite worship, took the mercy he received from Israel, and he brought it somewhere else. You see, Canaanite worship is persisting in the land where it should have been utterly devoted to destruction. And we see further cracks with the the north, especially in verses 27 through 36. Notice there's even before the divided kingdom, there's a north-south split in a lot of ways. The south is primarily successful. The north is not. Is it any wonder when we get to Hosea, when we get to the prophets who are prophesying to the northern kingdom, that Israel does terrible things when we read what we see in verses 27 through 36? What we see in 27 through 36 paves the way for what we see in Hosea and what we see in Amos and what we see uh, with Ahab, what we see in the northern kingdom of Israel. And so Manasseh does not drive out the inhabitants. Ephraim, Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, Dan, they do not drive out the inhabitants. Israel's incompetence, Israel's disobedience, Israel's lack of trust in the Lord is manifested and how they do not drive out the Canaanites. Now, there are natural consequences. Beth Shean is perhaps a major artery when it comes to trade, when it comes to uh, making one's way through the land. There are other major fortresses mentioned that Davis points out with some of the cities that are mentioned. So there are natural consequences, but the main issue is spiritual. Davis says remaining Canaanites would not be so much a military threat as a spiritual cancer. That's why Israel was to eliminate the Canaanites and other ites. That's why Israel was to wreck and demolish all their worship centers. Every Saint Baal on the Hill shrine and Our Lady of Harvest Chapel. They were to utterly devote it to destruction. But the people compromised. People perhaps thought they were being kind. They were being nice. Or they are just being lazy. We see that the people of Canaan are under tribute rather than utterly devoted to destruction. We see how they dwell amongst, in and amongst the people. And we do see that even in verses 34 through 36, we do see the Amorites even force the children of Dan outside of their inheritance. It would require Joseph later on when he got stronger to help them and put the Amorites Amorites under tribute. The people compromised and they did not obey the voice of the Lord. And notice how they compromised in little things. And those little things, those little sins, paved the way for larger consequences. I think Judges paints a very apt picture of what sin does and how sin works. Especially when little things begin to grow. Unbelievers might think little sins uh, are just fine. One little white lie. Young people might say, well, I'll, just have, I'll think about morality later on in life. I just want to have fun now. But in reality, one little sin is enough to damn someone to hell forever. Israel viewed the Canaanites living in the land as not that big of a deal. 
But as they disobeyed the Lord God, it would lead to bigger deals down the road. Now, for the people of God on this side of heaven, we are forgiven in Christ. We are washed in his blood. We are covered in the blood of Christ. We have the Holy Spirit. However, we can fall under times of great uh, grieving of the Holy Spirit. And a lot of times it starts with a little sin, doesn't it? A little sin that we let grow, little sins that begin to just boil up over time. Sometimes we might not think anything of it. We are forgiven in Christ, but we must be watchful by the power of the Holy Spirit. We begin to, it can apply to churches, it can apply to individuals, in any sort of thing, corporate gathering, private sins. It starts with something small and festers and builds to something greater. We have one angry thought and we don't deal with it. That angry thought turns into a word where we tear someone down, so on and so forth. Or perhaps we begin to neglect neglect the means of grace and the gathering of the people of God. We think, oh, we'll be fine. I can just neglect the means. I'll just do it this one time. It's probably okay. I got this other thing I've got to work on. And sooner or later, one week becomes two and two weeks become three. And sooner or later, people don't realize that the pot is boiling over. We need to be part of the people of God. We need to be gathered. We need to be fed. We must not forsake the assembling of ourselves. We must obey rather than do what we wish. Now, when we sin, we must always remember the place that we go first is the throne of grace, isn't it? When we sin, when we fall, one little sin, one little thought, one little deed, we go to God. I love what Newton says in one of his hymns, one of his poems. Though sin would fill me with distress, the throne of grace I dare address. For Jesus is my righteousness. When you struggle with sin, you go to the throne of grace. When you struggle with issues, you go to Christ. That is where we go first. And thankfully, as he is near, temptations do lose their power. So that's important to remember. I think a lot of the commentaries point out how little sins can fester and build and grow, especially what we see in Israel and what we see in chapter 1 and then where we see them at by the end of the book. Because their failure to complete the conquest shows that they are covenant breakers. So we'll move from the continuing conquest to covenant breakers, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2. Covenant breakers. And we see the covenant broken. And we see the covenant God appearing to them to accuse them of their sin. And notice we see the God of the covenant in verse 1. And it teaches us something about our God and the way in which he appears to them. So notice we see the God who communicates. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim. An angel refers to a messenger when he communicates on behalf of God, but I do think here it is God, by way of theophany, appearing to the people to speak to them. Notice there's no thus saith the Lord. It just says the angel of the Lord came up and said, I, I did all these things. I swore. I brought you up. I will never break my covenant. It is what the Lord does for his people. It is the Lord speaking to them. And they're perhaps certainly in Judges 13. Remember Mrs. Manoah and the angel Lord appears to them and they realize they're on holy ground and it was Yahweh who appeared before them. So that certainly has uh, comes about later on. But we could be uh, drawn back and we are drawn back to what 
God does for Joshua in Joshua 5, the commander of the Lord's army. Notice the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim. And remember, Joshua is on holy ground there. He takes off his sandals that alludes back to Exodus 3 with that burning bush. He's before a holy God. And perhaps the reason this is important is because God was with the people as they entered into the land. God helped them as they took the land. Now they are rejecting the God who helped them enter into that land. But he comes and he communicates as the angel of the Lord. Gil says, but neither a man nor a created angel is meant. Otherwise he would have spoken in the name of the Lord and said, thus saith the Lord, and not in his own name. Ascribing to himself the bringing of the children of Israel out of Egypt and swearing to them. And making a covenant with them and threatening what he would do to them because of their sin. Wherefore the uncreated angel... The angel of the covenant is meant who brought Israel out of Egypt was with them in the wilderness and introduced them into the land of Canaan and appeared to Joshua as the captain of the Lord's host at or near Gilgal. He is the God who saved them. He is the God who walked with them. Why are they rejecting this covenant God? So he's a God who communicates because the people have forgotten, haven't they? That's why we come to church, dear brethren. Because we grow forgetful throughout the week and we need to become and be reminded of who God is. They lost their sense of Yahweh's holiness. They lost their sense of Yahweh's majesty. I surmise that we have a low view of worship because we can have a low view of God. And we see it manifest in our life. It manifests in their life how they did not have any zeal to be a holy people. And this generation should have known better. This is the second generation after the wandering in the wilderness. They, should, they saw, they knew, they saw what God did with respect to how they crossed over that Jordan, how God fought for them. They should have known better. The next generation that we're going to see, they did not know. They should have known because that this generation should have passed it down to them. They should have heard. They should have heard what Yahweh had done and believed upon him. Dear brethren, the, the, the parallels that we're going to see on Sunday is we didn't see Christ, but the apostles saw Christ. We only hear about Christ, but yet we have to believe upon him. We're going to see Christ one day when he comes again, but now it is by faith. And even these guys here, they saw what Yahweh did, and yet they're still not obeying what he said. Again, it paints a very good picture of the depravity of mankind. Even after Yahweh appears before them, they still don't listen. The God communicates to them, yet they still do not obey. And so he's a God who communicates, but notice he's also a God who saves. I led you up from Egypt and brought you to this land. From Egypt to the promised land. Again, why did the Lord redeem them? It wasn't because they were good. They were a small nation. It was uh, for a purpose that they would go out of Egypt and worship him and obey him. He saved them from bondage. He brought them out of captivity for a good, to make them free and free to worship God. So he's a God who saves, but notice he's a God who fulfills of which I swore to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. That's the whole point of the book of Joshua, isn't it? There are no falling words. 
All that God had said came to pass. God was faithful to that Abrahamic promise. God said, I will give this land to your descendants. God has fulfilled that. And God never breaks the covenant according to the terms that he lays out depending on that covenant. Abraham, here's the land. I'll give it to your descendants, which he does. I will give you a seed, which God provides. Now we know that points ahead to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the seed, Galatians chapter 3, and all those found in all, all those found in Christ Jesus. But with respect to the Mosaic covenant as a covenant of works, God is also faithful to that, isn't he? And as a covenant of works, God, if they do what is right, they'll receive blessing. But if they do what is wicked, they're going to receive cursing. And even then, God is very long-suffering with them, very patient with them, very gracious with them. And that is really what we see throughout this entire book. But God is the one who keeps his promises. He did not fail Abraham, and he does not fail according to what he said with respect to the Mosaic Covenant. I will never break my covenant with you. And then notice, we see the people. Our God is a God who communicates, he saves, he swears, but notice the people. They're disobedient and distraught. Verses 2 and 3, they disobey. You shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. That was the promise. We saw, we saw this in Exodus 23 for the first generation. When they enter into the land, tear down all the altars. Deuteronomy 7, it's repeated again. Tear down all the altars. Deuteronomy 21, speaking about uh, rules concerning warfare. You are to devote all of them to destruction because God is using you as an instrument of judgment upon them and also so that you do not become an object of God's wrath as well. No covenant with them destroy all of their altars. And the accusation is clear. You have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? And notice how quickly, how quickly they have disobeyed. I mean, it shouldn't surprise us. I mean... They go to Sinai, Moses is gone for a little bit, and they worship a golden calf. That's how fickle people are. That's how waning our love can be. That's why we need Christ Jesus, and our rock and foundation is found in him, not in anything within us. It shows the utter inability of man, the utter inability of man to do what Yahweh says. Even despite his goodness, despite his holiness, the people still haven't listened. Even this generation who saw a lot of wonders that God had done. And one thing that's interesting is Israel, based upon what we've read, has become the dominant nation. They're dominant. They're having prosperity. They're having superiority over the Canaanites. But she was still supposed to be faithful. Henry says they had not that dread and detestation of idolatry which they ought to have had. They thought it a pity to put these Canaanites to the sword, though the measure of their iniquity was full. But it would be no harm to let them live among them, though they should be in no danger from them. But that is not what God has said. God said, devote them to destruction. Now, I'm not saying you have to go to some sort of temple and burn it down to the ground, but... We're supposed to hate idolatry, dear brethren. 
Certainly we need to hate it in other religions, but we need to hate it mostly in our own hearts. Especially, as Calvin says, our hearts are like idol factories. Even the people of God, the remaining corruption that we still have, we're forgiven in Christ, we're washed in his blood. I think the hardest part about uh, grasping that is that we have been washed in Christ's blood, yet we haven't, uh, we haven't experienced the fullness of the benefits of it just yet. We long for the fullness. We long for Christ to come back, yet we still struggle with remaining sin. And idolatry is that key sin, isn't it? We love ourselves. We love ourselves more than anything. We get offended easily. That's idolatry, isn't it? We don't want to work things out. That's idolatry. We gossip. We want to talk about everybody else. That's, in a lot of ways, an outworking of idolatry. Our opinions matter. Our worth matters versus other people and what God has said. And the result for Israel, they shall be handed over. Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. Joshua says this in Joshua 23, and, it is all, and it's certainly part of the covenant cursing as well, but especially in Joshua chapter 23. They shall be a snare to you. And that's exactly what they become. They're a disobedient people, and after they've been caught, they put on the waterworks. They're distraught. Verses 4 and 5. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. They're crying. Crying is not necessarily a bad thing, but it should issue forth fruits of repentance if it is truly repentant. So they weep and they cry, and then they call the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrifice there to the Lord. Again, not a bad thing. Weeping and sacrificing, those are good things. But is there any mention of an altar burning party? Is there any mention that they put away all the Canaanite gods after this? That's a work or a fruit of repentance that we are looking for. Repentance is a change of mind concerning certain things. And then hopefully from that repentance, there issues forth fruits of repentance. That's why the cycles and judges is not sword. It is not sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance, is it? It's sin, oppression, deliverance. Because the cycle just keeps happening. The people cry out to God, but is it in repentance? Especially the first several cycles, isn't it? I think later on, perhaps, possibly, but for the most part, they don't even cry out to... At one point with Samson, they don't even cry out anymore. They don't even cry out to God. The people have not repented of their ways. They might cry, they might weep, they might have a one-time experience, but they have not truly honored God aright in their life. Well, God requires right worship, and crying isn't necessarily bad. He wasn't looking for grand gestures and spectacles of remorse. He's looking for faithfulness. Faithfulness to what he says. Davis says, Christian success, whether personal or in the form of a glossy evangelical enterprise, is not necessarily the same as pleasing God. The text also underscores the importance of small faithfulness. Faithful to what you always said, just drive out the Canaanites. Just drive them out. Take the land, dispossess the land, just drive them out. You see, that might not seem like a, that might seem like a big sin, that might, or a big deal, not a big sin, but a big deal. It is a big sin, them not doing it, but a big deal. But 
it is a bit, it is a little deal compared to what will happen if the Canaanites remain in that land. And as we see, Israel is not faithful. And brethren, what God asks of us as redeemed saints in the power of the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit, is to be faithful. Faithful in our Christian walk, faithful to our families, faithful in our life. That is what God has called us to do. It might not be grand, it might not always feel nice, it might not always be the ups and downs that some other sort of other areas might emphasize, but I can assure you of this, God will be with you every step of the way. And God will feed you, God will help you, be faithful, and you will grow in the things of God because our God is faithful to his promises. And the important thing to see throughout the book, yes, it's the despicableness of Israel and the sin and how depraved sin truly is, but it magnifies the salvation of God, doesn't it? Especially when you consider the new covenant, when you consider how fickle man truly is. Man in sin is not moved by dying words. Joshua gave them dying words. You must honor God. They weren't moved by that. Man is not moved by the good news of salvation, is he? Truly. Some people scoff at it. Some people despise it. And man isn't moved by a holy God. Man won't be moved by a miracle that they see unless God gives him or her eyes to see and ears to hear. Only God can change a sinner's heart. Only God can take out that heart of stone and give a heart of flesh that man might have eyes to see and ears to hear. Without God's working, we would be blind and deaf, wouldn't we? Blind to see, deaf to hear about the depravity of our own sin, the destruction our sin deserves, and the deliverance from it in Christ Jesus. Only God can open our eyes with his word and with the spirit who works with the word. It is only God who regenerates. And even repentance is a gift that God gives. Acts 5, Acts 10, and 2 Timothy chapter 2. Christ has purchased for us salvation, and he, by the spirit, gives us all that we need. And he even gives us faith and he gives us repentance that we might see our sin, see the wickedness of our sin, turn from our sin and turn to the true and living God. We were as disobedient as Israel and yet God saved us. The whole book of Judges is about the so great salvation that comes from God. Well, let us pray. Lord, our God, we are thankful that you teach us about the seriousness and the depravity of sin throughout the history of Israel. We know that we are just as fickle. We know that we are just as disobedient uh, as the people of Israel. And yet we are thankful that there is forgiveness in Christ Jesus. We know that we would not have seen our sin and seen our need for Christ unless you first saved us. Unless you first had given us eyes to see and ears to hear. We are thankful that salvation comes from you. It is you who saves. It is Christ who came and lived and died and rose again. It is the Spirit who applies those wonderful benefits. And we are thankful that in our own personal histories, you did call us out of darkness into marvelous light. 
It was you who effectually called. It was you who gave us the gifts of faith and repentance. It is you who justified and adopted and sanctified and is sanctifying now. It is you who preserves us and will preserve us until the end. And it is you who will glorify us. We are thankful that we have not brought anything to our standing before you. But we ask and pray that as we are still pilgrims in the land, as we are still walking with remaining corruption, we pray that we would never lose sight of your holiness. We pray that we would never lose sight of who you are and what you've done. That we would never uh, um, grow weary of doing what is right according to what your word says. And help us to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Help us to set our mind upon the things that are above Help us to be watchful if one wicked thought enters our mind. Help us to seek forgiveness in Christ right away. And we are thankful that we can find, we do have forgiveness in you. Christ has washed us in his blood. Christ cleanses us and we are righteous in your sight because of him. We pray that when sin does fill us with distress, we pray that we would come to the throne of grace each and every time. Help us never to forget that because the new covenant is a covenant that cannot be broken. And we are so very thankful for that reality, that we are yours, you are ours, you are our God, and we are your people in Christ Jesus. So thank you for what you teach us. Help us to grow in our love for you. Help us to grow in our knowledge of you. Help us to grow in our understanding of you. And we pray that if we need some rebuke tonight, please give us that rebuke. Please forgive us and give us the strength uh, to change that very thing that we are rebuked for. If we need to be encouraged, please uplift us and remind us that you are a God who saves. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen. Amen. amen.